This is Amanda. And this is Rachel. And this is Vocal Perspective. Welcome, welcome to another episode of Vocal Perspective. This is Rachel, and I am here with my co-host, Amanda, and we are here with the incomparable Sarah Yud, who is Varsity Vocal Senior Producer of All Things Final. All the final events for Varsity Vocals are done by Sarah. She's an amazing, incredible human being, and we're so thrilled to have her. Hey, Sarah, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great. How are you all? We're good. It's a Friday afternoon when we're doing this interview, so that's a happy time of the week. Sure is. Absolutely. So Sarah, why don't you give us a little bit of your background in acapella and then maybe how you got involved in varsity vocals as well? I started listening to acapella at some point in middle school, and it was actually because my dad took me to his 25th college reunion at Yale, and the Yale Dukesman performed at his reunion, and then also the whiff and poofs from his senior year all performed. So like the people who had been in the WIS when he was a senior in college got back together and performed. And I thought, this is cool. I want to be a whiff and poof. Um, <laughs> not knowing that there would be some issues with that. I mean, sort of knowing, but, <laughs> and, and I love the Deuceman. And then in, when I was in high school, I went to high school in Worcester, Massachusetts, and we participated in the Yale Model Congress, and they would always have the Deuceman perform. And then also various acapella groups would come through my high school on college tours and things like that. So the Brown Derbies came to my high school. That was very exciting, especially in the late 90s. Um, <laughs> and they were really, really good. And I just remember picking up acapella anywhere I could get it. So anytime I was somewhere where there was a group performing, I would buy a CD. Or if some of my older friends went to college, they would send back cassette tapes, legit cassette tapes from the groups in their schools. And I thought, oh, this is cool. Co-ed acapella, because I'd only ever seen all male. Oh. And so I was like, oh, I really can do this. And so when I was applying to colleges, my first question at the admission sessions, would be tell me about your acapella groups. <laughs> um, I may or may not have done the same thing. <laughs> my mom's first question was like, can you tell us about the Jewish community at this school? <laughs> and so that was always something that I cared about. And when I went to visit Wash U, they very intelligently set me up with somebody who was in a co-ed acapella group and who was also an English literature major, which was what I was probably going to end up as. And I would just like to commend Wash U on their brilliantness for doing that because I was like, oh, okay, I'm obviously going to go here because she brought me to an acapella rehearsal. Yeah. And I was like, uh, yes. So I obviously then went to Wash U, auditioned for every acapella group I possibly could, got into the Wash U Amateurs, yeah. which was the, at the time, Honestly, it was like the second co-ed acapella group at WashU. And they weren't that much younger than the oldest co-ed acapella group at WashU. But co-ed acapella as a concept really did, wasn't a thing until later at these schools. So I joined the amateurs. It was awesome. And I loved it. And I immediately was like, what can I be in charge of? <laughs> that doesn't so, sound like you at all, Sarah. No, no. Um, <laughs> So I started producing our annual concert and then eventually became group coordinator, which is like our president position. And my senior year, one of the other groups on campus was supposed to be hosting the ICCA quarterfinal, and they just did not really know how to do anything or book anything. And so one day I just called up Amanda Newman and was like, hey, um, what's happening with this show? And she was like, I don't know. And I was like, do you need help? <laughs> and she said, yes. So I stepped in and booked the venue for the ICCA quarterfinal that I was competing in. And and, you know, just helped out with whatever we could 
good, got a sound guy. That was my senior year. So we'd been competing in ICCA all four years and we were not good. Um, <laughs> I love everybody who was in that group very, very dearly. And we were fine, but not great. But finally, my senior year, we were kind of okay. And we placed second at the quarterfinal and it was the greatest moment of my whole college career. Of course. <laughs> so, <laughs> And then, so I knew I had met Amanda Newman through competing in ICCA, and she was the Midwest producer at the time. And when I graduated college, I was staying in St. Louis for at least a year. And that was right at the same time that she was hired to become executive director of ICCA as a whole. And so she needed to hire a Midwest producer and was like, what about that person who made all the arrangements in St. Louis? And that is how I ended up getting hired at Varsity Vocals. Wow. Um, Yeah. So I've been working for Varsity vocals since the fall of 2004, which is not a long time at all. And (laughs) also, there are definitely not high school competitors who did not exist when I started working for Versus Vocals. No, there are. It's terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm curious, in that 15-year tenure, like, what has been some of the changes that you've seen? Well, at first, it was like this extreme shoestring operation, and nobody really knew what acapella was. If you had not been exposed to it, and you didn't have a child competing in the ICCA competition, ICHSA didn't, didn't even exist yet, then you would not know what this thing is. And so people didn't seek it out in the same way that they do now. Yeah. And certainly, it's also that I would say that so awareness did not exist. The people who were attending the quarterfinals and semifinal rounds were almost exclusively college students from that campus and friends of people who knew people in acapella groups. And that was her. There was no one outside coming to see this. That first year that I worked for Varsity Vocals, I remember going to New York for finals. And this is before that became like a culture thing for the producers to all go to New York. I just happened to be like, I'm going to go to New York for finals because I'm me. And I remember Amanda and I literally standing on a street corner trying to hand out free tickets two people because nobody knew like what our show was. And so we just stood in Times Square and handed out free tickets to our show. <laughs> and and some people came. So that was nice. <laughs> and so there was just like there wasn't other than people who really knew who we were. There wasn't this like cult of randos who would go to the shows. Right. You know, yeah. and if that didn't happen, it was building and it was building over time. But that truly didn't happen until Pitch Perfect. Yeah. And that was, I think, the catalyst for so much in the acapella world, obviously. But just for varsity vocals, it meant that we could have more shows because we could afford to rent more venues because we had higher ticket sales. It's very basic, but it's true. And it's very much tied to the release of Pitch Perfect and the sort of like the cultural understanding of what acapella is. And I think that's also probably because of Glee, too. And, you know, and other shows that were just more about music. So that has certainly been interesting to change. I mean, to see that change. There's also, you know, we introduced the high school competition while I was a producer, which, you know, at the time that we did that, honestly, the final for that was held during the judge deliberation for the college finals because there were only like three groups or something ridiculous um, because high school acapella wasn't a thing. I mean, there were very, <laughs> very few groups who were doing yeah, that. Yeah. And it became such a huge phenomenon. And I think, and I have to credit Andrea Poole and Amanda Newman for really investing in and believing in the high school program because for a long time there, the high school program wasn't really profitable. Mm-hmm. But Varsity Vocals believed that it should exist 
exist and that it could be something huge. And now it is really, really big. Yeah. So those are definitely things that have changed. And then just general media attention has changed, especially in the last few years. We've had a fair number of reporters come to finals, do pieces about varsity vocals. And I think, again, it's just about sort of the greater zeitgeist of acapella. And because there are, I think there are fewer moments of sincerity in life in general. And certainly acapella doesn't always have to be sincere, but it is a group of people coming together on a stage for the purpose of creating art. And that part is really, really beautiful. And I think that appeals to a lot of people. So what would you like people out there to know, whether they're competitors or just fans or audience members, about what goes into planning an event like ICCA or ICHSA finals? This shit is hard. Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of work. I start the planning process for the next show before the previous show has even happened because venues in New York, especially, you know, book out over a year in advance. We're looking for a Saturday in a very, very specific window of time. So that means that a year and a half in advance of the show, I am already going out to venues to find out venue availability and see where we might want to have our show. And sometimes that makes it difficult because we have to be able to predict a year and a half what the trends are going to be in acapella and what venue is the right venue for us. Fortunately, I now know basically every single New York venue by the back of my hand. And so it's pretty easy to be like, okay, here's our here's the 10 venues we always contact, I'm going to get in touch with them and see what we got. So I would say the planning process takes a long time. And then certainly, of course, you know, at Varsity Vocals, we've had various times where we've had television production at finals. And that process is a completely different animal. It is very volume heavy in terms of dealing with all these different studio production people who don't all talk to each other, but all have to talk to me (laughs) and dealing with sort of the logistics of stuffing a television production into a venue where we are already stuffing too many people. And most of these venues in New York don't have great backstage space because this is New York City and half of them were movie theaters before they were venues anyway. Yes, I really enjoyed helping backstage one year and the green room or the ready room was about the size of, you know, maybe six humans could fit in it comfortably. And I was trying to squeeze... 12 or 15 or 18 people in that oh, yeah. room. And I'm like, everyone get really comfortable. It's so glamorous <laughs> backstage. Well, yeah, what I will say is that every single venue has their own backstage schematic. And they tell me how many people they think fit in their dressing rooms. And I have to say they're all wrong. And you can fit way more people in the dressing rooms than they think. So. <laughs> totally. You just have Watch to like us. each other a lot. You have to like each other a lot. And then also, you know, for a college show, if we don't have dressing room space, we will often be renting hotel rooms for the groups down the street from the venue. So it's also managing logistics of that and planning out the schedule for the day, dealing with every single tech phone call and coordinating between our outside sound person and the internal sound people in the venue. I set all the ticket prices. I do all the ticket maps. Uh, So I determine, you know, how many seats we have to hold for various production items. If we're going to put a jib in the venue, I have to mark a whole bunch of seats as partial view. Like all of that, all of those logistics are what I do. And this is not my full-time job. This isn't even close to my full-time job. My full-time job, I am an attorney in New York City. So um, (laughs) this is all stuff that I do in my spare time in you know, found hours on the weekends. And I do it because I love providing the experience to students that was so meaningful to me in college. Awesome. Okay, so Sarah, 
Varsity vocals isn't the only acapella thing that you've done, especially since graduation. What other things have you been up to? Sure. So for a bit there, I was on the boss team and doing concert production stuff. And I love every single person who was involved with boss and they are all awesome and you should go to boss. I also served on the board of the Women's Acapella Association. And for those who are maybe not familiar, that was an organization that was trying to promote and create a place for women and people of color and other minorities and people who just didn't always have a voice in sort of the administration and the overall acapella conversation. And so we were trying to create that space for people. And that experience, honestly, was one of the most formative experiences for me because I learned so much from the other people who were in that organization. Everyone who was involved in that organization was passionate about what we were doing and really cared about creating space for people who did not traditionally have space in the acapella conversation. I attended a number of what was the Waka She Sings conference, which evolved into the We Sing conference. Mm -hmm. And it's just, you know, you were also there. And it was (laughs) a, I can honestly say that the lessons that I learned from Waka have been so applicable in my professional life since then, not just in terms of varsity vocals, but it certainly did change the language that I use when I talk to people. It definitely exposed me to a whole host of issues that I didn't understand, perhaps the depth of the problems. Yeah, Yeah. And it's something that I now, because of the work that I did with Waka, I now feel empowered to help other people sort of expand their own language. And so it's something that we talk about before finals at Varsity Vocals with all the staff. We say like, hey, there are some people here who are probably going to be non-binary or don't identify as men or women. And please just make sure that your language is inclusive when you're talking to them. It's something that Emily Flanders, who's the adjudication director for Varsity Vocals, talks about when she trains judges. And, you know, all of the producers instead of saying men, male voices or female voices or whatever, you can say high voices, low voices, you can say altos and sopranos, tenors and basses, that's not necessarily gendered. Um, And so learning to sort of eliminate gendered language in my own speech patterns was something that was hugely affected by the work that Waka does. And now in my professional life, I sit on the board of the Women's Jewelry Association. And it's something that we talk about there. And honestly, I feel like my language is advanced in that arena from everybody else because of Waka. I agree. I, and it's really a shame that the organization no longer exists. But I think the work does continue. Yeah. What do you feel like maybe the community, either failings of our community or things that we definitely still need to work on? Well, I mean, clearly one of the failings was that this organization that was so necessary could not continue to exist. We just didn't have the financial support that we needed to continue the organization. And in fact, the people who were on the executive team, which I was not, I was just a board member, but the people who were really doing the work every day were unpaid or extremely low compensated and who were really throwing themselves into the organization and really just could not continue to do that and like have an adult life. Um, It's just (laughs) not possible to prioritize something all the time where you're not getting compensated for your time. And they were so intelligent and devoted to it. And so to me, there's a failing to support the organization. And I think there was not a lot of money being given to the organization. And that really sucked, frankly. Yeah. And so that couldn't continue. And I think that in acapella, we are, despite the fact that we call ourselves contemporary acapella, I think we are 
often behind the times in terms of dealing with issues of gender and sexuality. And, you know, especially in, I would say, all-male acapella groups. (laughs) They'll make a lot of really dumb jokes that aren't actually funny. Right. And I'm not trying to blame all all male acapella groups. I know that that really doesn't describe everybody. But there's still the fact that we still and I still refer to acapella groups as all male and all female and co-ed. Like, what does that even mean? When I talk about I sing in a professional choir. And I realized when I was doing some recruitment stuff for the choir that I myself was using gendered language for our choir, which didn't have to exist. Right. And I was calling it a co-ed choir. And I was like, this is and then I started shift and I shifted that and I was like, you know what, this is a mixed gender choir. Right. And that is much more inclusive, because and you can you, be anywhere on this gender spectrum and be included in that. Exactly. And that's still something that I have to remember to say, oh, yeah. because yeah, we grew up and it was co-ed, all female, all male. And mm-hmm. especially with non-binary, who I see most frequently referred to as they, mm-hmm. as a linguist, it's really hard for me to remember to say they are for a singular person. Um, yeah. So yeah. it, it so still takes some effort, but it, it's it worth effort. it. And I would say that it is absolutely worth it. And also the thing that has helped me the most is just saying they out loud. Yes. As just like, repeating sentences over and over again, where I make they singular. And, (laughs) you know, I was an English lit major, and I get it. It's like, it's not the way our brains were designed to operate in educational systems. Um, I'm hopeful that maybe one day the English language will change, and we'll just get rid of gendered (laughs) language altogether. But that's hopeful. You know, it's sort of going into, you know, my real job for a minute. One of the products we deal with, I deal with as a lawyer is laboratory grown diamonds, which are diamonds that are made in a factory as opposed to found in the ground, Mm -hmm. like natural diamonds. Laboratory grown diamonds are made in a factory and people often refer to them as man-made diamonds. And every single time somebody says that, I say, why are we unnecessarily gendering a product? Right. Like, to me, that just doesn't make any sense. But it's about varsity vocals has been about for a very, very long time, creating a space for people where there wasn't space. Acapella groups for a long time on a lot of college campuses were, you know, marginalized, or, you know, they had to compete with the classical music department for space and time and performers. And sometimes even even the voice teachers wouldn't let their students be in acapella groups. Yep. And to me, the beauty of what Varsity Vocals does is that it has created a space for performance where there was none. And it has given so many groups a goal to follow. That's what it did for me. My freshman year in college, I think was the first time that my college acapella group ever competed in ICCA. We had no idea what we were doing because we had <laughs> only ever seen other groups on campus. And so seeing other groups was like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do at an ICCA (laughs) competition. And we got better every single year because of what we saw other groups doing in competition. And it just gave us more exposure. And we made friends through that competition. You know, we ended up traveling to Chicago to sing with Voices in Your Head and going to Michigan to sing with the G-Men. And those were connections that we would not have made without Varsity Vocals. So where do you see Varsity Vocals going? You guys have obviously grown quite a bit and expanded quite a bit, even in the last couple of years. Where do you see it going? And where would you like to see it go? I would like to produce finals events in New York for the rest of my life. That is my goal. (laughs) Well, I think uh, Varsity Vocals would be lucky. The entire community would be uh, very lucky if you did that. You know, it's interesting, of course, as my career has grown, the amount of time that I have 
for varsity vocals has waned. And so I'm not producing regions anymore, even though I, I used to do that for many, many years. And it's for me, it's just like, I'm cool if I get to produce cool concerts in awesome New York venues forever. That is truly what I enjoy doing. I think in terms of the organization, of course, you know, you talked to Amanda Newman for this podcast. And, you know, she has a lot of really phenomenal ideas and cares a lot, I think, about developing singers after college. So that's part of why we started the Open Tournament, of course, was to provide this opportunity to people after college. Of course, some people don't come to acapella until after college. Right. Because they have other priorities in school. But why shouldn't they also have the opportunities to do this? And then in terms of her move into artist development, I think it's the same thing. I think it's just a wanting to make sure that there are places for people to perform and to love acapella throughout their lives. So I think that's certainly a priority for the organization. And in terms of me, my priority is awesome concerts, awesome venues. (laughs) I think you're doing pretty okay there. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) What kind of challenges have you seen? You've worked in a lot of different arenas with CASA events and varsity vocals events and sitting on the board and, and being a singer yourself. Mm-hmm. What kind of challenges have you seen that you either wish you hadn't or feel like there was a better way to go about it? I would say that certainly when I started producing shows for varsity vocals, there were times where I would have conversations with people at the venue and they, because of my age at the time or my gender, I wasn't respected in the way that I expected. Quite frankly, that ended fairly quickly because I realized that I had to be a very on top of my shit, aggressive person to get people to respect me. And now that I've been doing this for 16 years, I don't have to do that anymore, which is really nice. Certainly the varsity vocal staff would tell you all that on show days, I am all business. I am not not fun, kind, generous, warm Sarah. I am get your shit done, Sarah. (laughs) And, And that is just about efficiency because especially for most of these venues in New York, we have just that one day in the We don't rent additional rehearsal time. So if you get up at 6am and you get in the venue at 8 and you get everything set up and mostly that is the sound people doing that. I don't do that part, but it's working with every single human in the venue to make sure that they all understand what we're doing and we know what they're doing and the right hand is talking to the left hand. And, you know, at this point in my career, that doesn't intimidate me the way that it used to. And so certainly I'm glad that I felt comfortable stepping up fairly quickly and saying, like, okay, look, I'm in charge here. I get that I'm 26 and I look like I'm 18, but like I'm actually in charge. (laughs) And I don't have to do that anymore because now I have established connections and reputations in in all these places. But, you know, that that I think would be a challenge for somebody new coming in. And I also recognize that that is probably a fair amount of white privilege too, that somebody who wasn't white and might not have had the same agency that I did going into those places. So I think that that's something that's interesting. I also think that it's sort of interesting to see how the acapella community, I think, for a very long time was dominated by a bunch of white men. And it's less the case now, but it's definitely still a huge majority of who is in control of a lot of the things happening in acapella. And again, not to damn all white men, because many of them have been incredibly generous with bringing in other people and making sure that opportunities extended to all, but a lot of them haven't either. And so I think that it can be challenging when, when you're looking for 
somebody to record your album, for example, the majority of your choices are a bunch of very talented white men. And so it takes still, effort. Still the case. Yeah. Still the case. And it takes effort to go out and find somebody who is not that to record your album, for example. And <laughs> I commend people who've done that, honestly, because I think that it takes bravery to sort of step outside the norm. In the future, I would love to see more women and people of color being able to make a life out of being an engineer and mm-hmm. in the acapella space. And it just means cobbling together a lot of things to be your job. Yes, it does. Yes. And it's, (laughs) and you know, very well that that really challenging a lot of the time, because it's not reliable. And I couldn't do that. You know, I have a very reliable full time job. It's definitely a measured choice that takes daily recommitment to it. And it and it's risk right? Yes. It is a huge amount of risk. And I think that society has dictated that women are supposed to take fewer risks because you're supposed to be steady and stable and at home and blah, blah, blah. It definitely feels that way. Yeah. And so I hope that we will get to evolve to a point as a community where women feel not only can they take that risk, but they are encouraged to take that risk and that there will be a community there willing to help them. Yep. I mean, from my personal experience, I don't work so much in the studio production, but we do Mm-hmm. have one woman on our staff, Ellie Brigida, who we talked to earlier. Yeah. And she's fighting and she's a fighter. And I don't see <laughs> that. I don't see that level of aggressiveness. Not that she's like angry or rude or anything, but just fighting for what she wants. I don't see that in many women. I wish I did. And then on the live side, which is where I do most of my engineering, maybe I'm wrong, but I know of myself and Jill Clark. And I think we may be two of the only women mm-hmm. doing this. And yep. One day I would like to not be able to name all of us or count all of us on my fingers. Yeah, that would be super nice. And that's, like, that's another thing where I think Farsi Vocals is so outside the norm is the majority of our staff is women. Mm-hmm. And, you know, certainly part of that is because it is, it's in service of something. And I wonder, I think about this all of the time because my full-time job is in a service organization and it's all women. I wonder if women are drawn to organizations like that where you are serving a, a certain goal because of traditional norms about thinking about what kind of work women are allowed to excel in. And that's just sort of something I think about. I'm certainly not criticizing anybody who does it because I do it and I love it. It's part of what I love about my full-time job and what I've loved about all of my jobs is that all of my jobs are supporting artists. My entire career, including varsity vocals, which doesn't generally fit into my normal career timeline (laughs) talking points, it's about serving, supporting, and creating space for artists. And I think that those things are all part of things that we should talk about as a community and as a society about, yes, varsity vocals is primarily women. Women succeed very, very well there. Why is that? Why is that an environment where part of it is because the company is owned by a woman? You know, (laughs) It definitely sets the tone for the comedy culture. Who, Who cares about hiring women? And part of that is also because it's women who are willing to do that work. And what does that mean? I don't know that I'm entirely articulating this the way that I want to, but it's certainly something that I've thought about a lot in the context of my full-time career and in terms of all of the other volunteer and side gig acapella things that I've done in my life. Well, this interview and like many of our others always makes me sad that we decided to make this podcast 30 minutes long because 
because <laughs> I could sit and talk to Sarah all day long, which oftentimes when we are in the We've same place, that. we do that. So thank you so much for joining us today, Sarah. And we're looking forward to the ICCA, ICHSA competition season getting started and seeing you at finals. Well, knowing back. that you're backstage at finals, working your tail off. I will be backstage at finals and you will see me at the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you. Another huge thank you to Sarah Yude for joining us this week for episode 19. And a thank you to you listeners for sticking with us and tuning in every week to hear opinions and perspectives from the women in the acapella community. Next week, we're speaking with Elena Georgieva, who works with groups at Stanford University on the West Coast as an engineer. And as always, we're always looking for more thoughts and perspectives from you, our audience. So if you have something you'd like to say or you would like Rachel and I to discuss, don't hesitate to send it in to onair at acaville.org. That's all for this week. We'll see you next Tuesday.